Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon, this time for the April edition of our Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I'm good, my friend, and uh, just happy to be here with you tonight. And uh, wow, we've really got our work cut out for us this month uh, because four excellent articles coming up. But before we do that, a couple of little news items. And the most important one I've got is that Simulation Reconnect is on again Wednesday the 15th of November at Bond University. And if you have not found that, it's on uh, our newsletter. It's on the website soon. And uh, we'll be keeping on talking about it. So registrations will open in about two months, I'd say. But put it in your uh, calendar because it's going to be another lovely meeting of simulation friends talking about interesting topics, including featuring uh, Vicky LeBlanc, who's a great sim researcher, scholar and person from Canada. And she'll be talking about some of her work in stress exposure and other such things. Have you got any other news, Ben? No, but I am super pumped to meet Vicky. So it's definitely in my diary and my colleagues and uh, really looking forward to it. Well, I think you're going to kick off. You're going to do two papers, one after the other, because we've both got a bit of a theme. Mine is transfer to practice. But you're going to start us off with thinking about uh, the competencies of debriefers and simulation faculty in general. So why don't you get going? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe this is just reflecting my new job because I'm having to think about these things a whole lot more than before. Uh so, yes, the two articles I've got are really looking at how do we assess ourselves and our colleagues when it comes to simulation competence. And the first one is entitled Entrustable Professional Activities for Simulation Faculty, a Novel Approach to Standardizing Mentorship and Faculty Development for Healthcare Simulation Programs. And it's by Alicia Kaba et al. and published in uh, IJOS. And I have to say for me, Vic, um, I think IJOS is really coming into its own now in terms of the quality of papers that we're seeing. And I've certainly noticed uh, quite a lot of prominent authors and simulation teams now really starting to take advantage of the quality of the journal and their open access submission process. And it's been really exciting to watch. And so this paper takes a look at faculty development for simulation educators and explores the concept of entrustable professional activities, or EPAs, for simulation faculty using a modified Delphi approach. And in the background section, the authors point out quite accurately, I think, that a lot of simulation literature is heavily focused on debriefing and debriefing frameworks, with less emphasis paid on how to develop the rest of the skills required to be an effective healthcare simulationist. And I think that's true. And I was, I was certainly struck this, this month, actually, meeting my new sim fellows and asking, what do, you know, what, how best can I help you? What do you want faculty development on? And over and over again, it echoed debriefing, 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 which very much mirrored my own focus as I was learning about simulation in general as well. And so the authors highlight that there is a more to this than just learning how to debrief uh, and B, that there are multiple ways to achieve competency in those areas. They highlight the value of peer coaching and mentorship in simulation programs, but they argue that that isn't really sort of super sophisticated or necessarily thorough and is vulnerable to some risk. 
So they introduced the idea of EPAs and milestones. And in the article, EPAs are defined as reliable, observable tasks that simulation facilitators are trusted or expected to be able to perform independently by the end of their mentorship. Whereas milestones are sort of a specific observ observable marker of an individual's ability along a developmental continuum. So as they progress from beginner tasks to tasks that are more complex and towards independent practice. And in a sentence that I think in some ways is kind of the central thesis of the paper to me, they state, just as clinicians need EPAs to develop and demonstrate competence, so must simulation facilitators have entrustable skills, knowledge, and attitudes. And passion alone to be a simulation facilitator is no longer adequate if you want to achieve simulation excellence. I thought that, you know, it's really rang true for me. So I guess, how did the team at Provincial Simulation in Alberta tackle this problem? Well, in 2017, they did an Alberta-wide needs assessment, which actually revealed some interesting stuff about how siloed their individual services within the state were, and that they'd often spontaneously created similar or overlapping approaches and resources in different sites, which I think is a common theme uh, that we see in lots of places. And they had then identified goals for future planning using a SWOT analysis, which is i.e strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and then they align those with national simulation accreditation standards. And essentially, by the end of it all, they'd had developed an entrustable professional activities faculty assessment for simulation tool, which is for new simulation faculty starting a mentorship. And within each of those kind of EPA domains, they have a set of milestones. And once that product was done, they then ran it through a modified Delphi process to refine, shorten, and simplify and streamline that. So they basically asked another 20 external experts whether it resonated, how things could be reworded, and how important each milestone was. And in the end, I think they got to a pretty tight kind of five EPAs or domains, which were technology, scenario design, and fidelity slash realism, simulation facilitation, pre-briefing, and debriefing. And there are 31 milestones enclosed within those domains. There's also at the end of the document some pretty nice discussion around implementation, including just simple strategies like using electronic PDFs for scoring, documenting target times to ensure you're actually having follow-up conversations with your learners. Um, and for me, look, I think this was pretty cool, an awful lot of work, uh, and I'd very much like to steal the whole thing so I don't have to repeat it. Any thoughts, Vic? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing. It's good to have an acronym too at the end, EPA FAST. It's such a catchy thing. Uh, but you're right, I think their aim was to develop a tool that people could use to track progress as a simulation faculty member. Uh, and I think what they've come up with uh, seems as good as many others. I suppose the question is, is it any better than any others? Uh, and I'm not sure that is because I've seen excellent work by other people as well who have done some similar processes and some different different processes to try and get some consensus around what would be a curriculum for simulation faculty uh, and what how well might we assess people. And then people who've done work around the process, and I'm thinking about Dawn Taylor-Peterson's tiered models, et cetera, which they make reference to here. So I suppose the question is um, for a academic conversation, do we keep on providing new frameworks and decide which is the best one? Or do we say, uh, isn't it great? Let many 
flowers bloom, bloom and you pick the one that feels best for you. And I'm certainly one for uh, deciding what's best for one's context rather than everyone having to do the same thing. Uh, I did have a couple of questions because I think as a reader, there's a lot of work to do here with all the frameworks. Like if you're not familiar with a SWOT analysis or a Delphi technique, which were their methods. And then they're also sort of thinking about frameworks. So even to get your head around entrustable professional activities is, is quite a lot. So I feel like as a reader, there's a lot of jumps to make, uh, but they take us through them pretty patiently, which is good. Uh, and another thing I'm not sure about is I've always associated entrustable professional activities with a medical curricular sort of competence concept. And uh, I wasn't sure how that related to other health professions in Canada, because as they say, it's from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada. I'm not sure whether EPAs uh, translate across nursing and other professions that we know are involved and uh, how it might translate. It, it felt very medical, put it like that. It felt like here's a way doctors are thinking about competence and let's think about that with simulation faculty. And they didn't really define if they were thinking about faculty beyond medicine, but I presumed so. Again, the author group is diverse. So I just wondered uh, how familiar that framework would be to other professions. So they were my thoughts. I mean, I think they've done meticulous work. Uh, and then the question about if we just steal the EPA fast, will it be useful? I would say so. Certainly much better than random faculty development. And I think I just appreciated um in general, I guess I still have concerns that when we talk about faculty development a lot in a lot of organizations, we talk about which courses do you need to attend to achieve competence. And so for me, I guess I still, uh, it sounds like you've read a lot more widely when it comes to these uh, kind of assessment processes. For, but for me, I'm still enjoying just shifting that conversation to let's talk about what we need to get good at and how do we achieve that and measure it rather than just you need to attend X and X courses and then you will be competent and we will release you into the world again for you to deliver things perpetually. Hmm. Totally agree. And I think uh, all assessment across many different domains is moving towards outcomes hmm. rather than process. And that's the whole nature of EPAs, isn't hmm. it? If you can say that I can leave you in the operating theatre on your own, uh, that's a better, as good a marker as anything someone's come up with uh, to say, are you ready to do Operation mm. X rather than just have you been to enough courses and done enough cases? Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, continue reflecting on how we assess ourselves or evaluate ourselves. And we're going to look at some further work uh, by Andrew Collig Coggins and his colleagues. So uh, this article is entitled The Debriefing Assessment in Real Time, brackets, DART tool for simulation-based medical education. It's by Kaushik Baliga et al. and published in Advances in Simulation. And just to refresh our little bit of context, I guess we've been talking a fair amount on Simulcast and in other forums about Andrew Coggins and his uh, colleagues' work on real-time conversational mapping as a component of debriefing assessment. Uh, we talked previously about that beautiful paper that featured, you know, mapping it out as a visual diagram as the star and the fan and the triangle um, and how useful that can be. And I certainly know you and I have had uh, separate conversations and 
play with trying trying that out with our teams and giving each other live feedback. And so it was quite. Oh, we have used yeah. that over and over again as a useful little exercise, and sometimes to inform feedback conversations, but sometimes to get a bit of a group diagnostic as well, because I don't think we should be quite so narcissistic as to think the whole group conversational diagram is dependent on us as facilitators. Sometimes there are just differences between groups. So we found that really helpful, that conversational diagram uh, paper in a lot of different ways. Yeah, 100%. And uh, such, such easy uptake, like anyone can get it in about 30 seconds and then it's just done. Um, so for me, it was quite cool to see this collaboration, which is with Stanford and Cape and uh, Western Sydney, taking that natural next step of trying to formalize some of their work into a more formalized tool for other teams to use. So essentially, they've created a real-time debriefing analysis tool, which consists of some initial um, relatively generic data followed by a series of checkboxes every time the debriefer makes a statement or a question and then when the participants respond. And so at the end of that, you can calculate the percentage of time the debriefer spent talking, asking questions versus the participants, and you can explore that with the person who's receiving the feedback. So that's kind of the tool, it's known as the DART tool, uh, uh, but this study was actually about ascertaining that tool's reliability and validity. So the team from Cape Stanford to Western Sydney ran eight video recorded debriefs and then ran 12 faculty through using the tool to assess the debrief and then measure inter-rater reliability. They then also scored the same debriefs using the DASH, which is a pre-existing validated debriefing assessment tool. And then they surveyed the assessors for their opinions about the tool's ease of use and value. And what do they find in their analysis? Well, it's a little bit tricky, and I had to look some things up to really understand this, Vic, and I think I, I may still be struggling a little bit. They found that broadly it was reliable, so based on something called Chromeback's alpha test, but that the scores themselves for different subsections were quite variable with different raters. So when it comes to assessing that, there's kind of a lovely and in-depth breakdown in the paper uh, that I think is worth reading, but essentially there's a high amount of variability in how raters scored the instructor question, trainee response, and instructor question to statement ratios. Uh, so depending on how you saw things like AI, so if you saw them as a series of statements or you saw them as one wholly formed complex question, you might score things very differently. And that could be a problem when you're trying to validate this. It also didn't correlate particularly with DASH scores. So its role in some ways in assessment of a debrief is unclear. And the debriefing raters, though, did kind of rate it as useful and relatively easy to use, uh, but did highlight the importance of training. Uh, I think for me, I have to say the problem here for me is that I, I feel like they're trying to brand DART or this conversational mapping concept as a scoring system where you say you were X good at debriefing, uh, or at least they try to validate its use as such. Uh, whereas in the conversation around the tool, they highlight its value as, you know, really a rapid feedback tool for self-calibration. And, and we've certainly found that with the conversational map strategy. So as they argue in the article, it clearly doesn't correlate with a debrief score per se, but it can still be a useful quantitative part of the feedback conversation. But for me, maybe the complexity of this tool compared to the simplicity uh, and elegance of just drawing out that conversation doesn't win me over. 
Uh, how about for yourself? Yes, I have to admit to a bias against trying to quantify statements in a debrief. I'm thinking about that excellent conversation you had with Michaela and using masses of data to try and correlate the kind of questions you ask with the kind of responses you get. And even that, I think, taking in this incredibly granular approach was pretty hard to really predict. Uh, re maybe you could predict responses, but whether you can predict learning, uh, I'm not so sure. And I, I feel with this, I, I do have a bias against trying to what I would call over-quantify these conversations because I think there's a lot of different ways of getting to an end point. And the trouble with counting the ways is, as you say, there tends to be a value judgment implied in that. And they give the example there of initiating feedback to a debriefer talking about numbers of statements and how many questions and how many responses. And I don't know that I would necessarily find that the most useful. I think the thing in the paper for me that was most useful is turns out it might unveil some blind spots, including times that you just spend telling people a few things when you think you're doing this really learner-centered debriefing. So to try and see if there's uh, contradictions in your approach is probably useful. But I think, as you say, this very quantitative approach to testing validity and reliability is tricky because, of course, that kind of testing is only ever in context. And you can see that this needs to be applied a lot of against a lot of different situations. And will it really help the feedback conversation, which I think is going to depend on a lot more on the feedback person uh, and the person receiving the feedback than just how well the conversation has been counted. So uh, that feels a little harsh to me given the quality of the work, but I guess I'm just questioning the direction of the work. Uh, and that's probably a personal um, setting as much as it is any comment on the quality. Well, I feel like this is really interesting because there's this tension uh, between us and certainly for me, I feel like we want to move ourselves away from just this is consensus expert opinion that this is the way to do a debrief. Um I admire uh, teams who are digging deeper and trying to find quantitative components to answer that question. Uh, but I still feel like as a community, when we're looking at this problem, we keep replicating the same pattern, which is to decide what a good debrief looks like first and then measure how the debrief in front of us fits with that rather than finding a way to measure transfer of learning or meaning and uh, I think that's a really tricky problem to solve. I think uh, I think feedback conversations will always be aided by having a structure including domains under which to have conversations and to prompt reflection so I'm all for that uh, and I think this will help us with that as well because it will give us some things that indicate what to talk about and I don't know that uh, they aspire to and don't know that we should as as to say how to talk about them. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, well done at getting through Cronbach Alpha, mate. I asked GP Chat. <laughs> what did Chat GPT say? It was very say? helpful. Oh, I didn't. Hang on. I'll see if I, I did keep it as an aside. And I eventually asked it to, like, summarize it in two lines. Uh, but, uh, no, it was very, very useful. I've deleted it. But it was essentially telling me about the difference between reliability and variability. And it 
did a very good job. Oh, right. How did it feel about mm. being deleted? Oh, it was fine. Yeah, we're cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, these next two papers that I'm going to lead our discussion about relate to transfer to practice of the work that we do in simulation. And the first is a conceptual paper, and the title of which is Learning After the Simulation is Over, the Role of Simulation in Supporting Ongoing Self-Regulated Learning in Practice. And that is by Fahana Sharif, uh, Rose Hatala, and Glenn Rieger, all from Canada. And particularly the last two authors are pretty famous in terms of thinking about theory that underpins many things in education, but including simulation. And the reason I chose this, this is from Academic Medicine in 2020. Uh, so it's a little way back, and I found this paper when looking for something else, but I thought it was a lovely chance for me to try and really see if I understood what self-regulated learning was as a, as a theory, but also to nudge a little bit my thought that simulation is as much about creating habits as it is about learning the content in the sim. So it fed into that and maybe helped me understand my own thoughts a little bit better. So uh, really the premise of the paper says that simulation might be able to prepare learners for self-regulated learning. That is, the ability to self-assess, manage learning, and modify practice uh, based on experience. But maybe, as sim faculty, we can do more if we want to try and achieve this holy grail of helping learners know how to learn better. So uh, certainly self-regulated learning theory is well known to educators, but some of us in sim might not have a really deep grasp of it. And what I will do in the notes accompanying this podcast is provide a link to one of those educational theory made practical articles, which is just a short synopsis of self-regulated learning. But I'm going to quote from the article here, the self-generated thoughts, feelings, and actions that are planned and cyclically adapted to the attainment of personal goals. Through such processes, clinicians are able to systematically improve through reflection on their own daily practices. So this does involve a couple of steps, being able to self-evaluate where am I at and then being able to think carefully about what will make me get better at that, what, how will I manage my own learning processes in order to achieve those goals and then keep it as an iterative process, which is a little bit, I feel like, of a holy grail as a learner, certainly not where I feel like I would self-assess myself as being as a learner. Uh, and so I think it's it's a really good aspiration, but I can tell even from the conversation we had with our group this morning, it's quite hard to get our head around. So if we think about uh, SIM, the authors contend that currently SIM focuses on encouraging self-regulated learning within a SIM, but how about beyond the SIM? And they give some lovely diagrams there that show our their models of what happens in SIM, which is we go to SIM, we learn stuff, say about uh, managing a severe head injury and then we leave the sim and then we kind of gradually forget it unless we have a repeat dose of learning in which case then we might remember some of it again but what they uh, suggest is maybe the learning can continue to occur after the sim because of the habits of learning that the sim might give us uh, and so I think that's really quite a um big shift for many people who think we're taking away the management of head injury instead of thinking, how will I learn from the next patient I see with a head injury as a result of the learning I did in SIM? And so the um, authors sort of propose this third model of how we might go about doing that. And they continue to 
illustrate maybe some of the problems of the way we thought about it because what we do now is go really deep on trying to make the sim more realistic and use various techniques within the sim to optimize the transfer to practice uh, but we don't do this emphasis on thinking about planning to continue to learn and I sort of think about this as an example we had tried in this which is we would do a sim in our sim session but instead of doing a debrief that was led by us the next phase of the sim was the team doing a clinical event debrief within the simulation session. So they were practicing how they would learn as a team in the future by practice, by doing some learning as a team from their simulation. Uh, it was a, I would say I'm not, we weren't entirely successful with that. People did it, but I felt like they were performing rather than practicing, if that makes sense. So uh, they, again, I'm going to quote from the article. Uh, learners need guidance on how to create a learning plan, how to select appropriate cognitive strategies for learning, how to monitor self-progress and how to evaluate progress. And I think the question is, can SIM help us do that? And if so, how can we as facilitators optimize that? And the authors were a bit slow on giving really practical suggestions for that, which is probably my uh, issue with it. They say, ultimately, simulation might provide the perfect opportunity to foster the ability for individuals to learn at work instead of simply learning about work. So I think there's possibilities here, but it's really hard for me to see what that actually looks like. So one thing I did do, because this was published in 2020, is I thought, well, they were trying to start an, a conversation and get people to do things. And the paper has been so far got seven citations since then, but none of them were anything where I went, great, here's a great example of exactly what they're talking about. And uh, I think it's because it's kind of hard. So, Ben, what did you think? Theory, practice, notions? Yeah, look, <laughs> look, I love the paper and I, uh, I also really like the diagrams of the forgetting curve uh, with kind of the visual of that forgetting curve and then that booster training popping you up and then uh, kind of that scolding about our uh, self-satisfaction with that and then realizing that there's these potential blips where we have the failure of learning transfer in the diagram that actually people perform really well in the sim on the day and then they go back to the job and do exactly what they've always done and actually we just deluded ourselves for a little bit. Um, I love this acknowledgement that we do have a way to go in teaching our teams to get better at getting better and that this definitely involves some element of shifting the conversation from this is what we've learned to how are you going to embed this and continue to grow outside of this space? Um, and in some ways, it was a little bit analogous to thoughts around how to optimize germane learning in SIM, like how do we help trainees link their experiences to long-term learning? And then how do we motivate them to continue that reflection down the line? And I agree that it just feels like there's the opportunity there from those kind of uh, cycles of reflection to help people get better at extending them. But I think also the way that we run sims actually has potentially contributed to the problem because we uh, put often put the debriefer on a pedestal as uh, that shaman, at least for learning, uh, rather than teaching the group themselves. And I know there has been some papers on teams that self-debrief doing it quite effectively. So maybe we've uh, made a rod for our own back there. Yeah, it's hard. And I think sometimes this may be happening, but if sign whether signposting it might be easier. So I did try something today in our simulation sessions. 
Uh, no, we do a take-home message at the end, and usually I give them enough latitude and I just say whatever, uh, and invariably I get the content that these authors are talking about. So today I said, I want you all to offer a take-home point. It can either be about something we did in the sim or something you thought about how, about how you might learn when you go back into practice. And I didn't get much back. I got mainly stuff about the content of the sim. But I felt like I can modify my question a little bit, and I think I'll start to get some things, and that's my small foray into this agenda. It's not easy, and I think it is a new concept for people, and so it's such a big step that you end up putting the question out there and then not getting much back. Uh, and so it may very well be a very long-term goal or one that you know clicks for someone later that we don't even realize it's happened. People did come up with a lot of team things. People said mm. things like, well, I've actually learned that I can give a suggestion here and people are going to welcome it, uh, which I think is helps, but that's sort of an in-between goal, I think. It's not just about head injury. It is about um, something beyond that. But getting to I've learned how to learn, that's another story. All right, well, speaking of uh, learning how to learn, this next paper also relates to transfer to practice, and it talks about exactly what the authors of the last paper said, which is trying to get more sophisticated in our simulation design and delivery to optimise transfer to practice, which I think is still a very excellent goal. So this paper is called Critical Design Choices in Healthcare Simulation Education, a 4CID perspective on design that leads to transfer. And this is by Frere Gian and co, uh, including Walter Epic as the senior author. So uh, this is a team from Maastricht and from Ireland. So, uh, and this, I just will point out that this is in the methodological intersections section of advances in simulation from just recently. Uh, and this is a special uh, section that has just been created for people who are thinking about different ways of studying phenomena. Uh, which we did actually highlight here on Simulcast. So the headline is, they have five recommendations to design simulations that facilitate transfer. Firstly, emphasizing whole task practice. Two, considering a cognitive task analysis. And three, embedding simulations within more comprehensive programs. Four, strategically combine and align simulation formats. And five, optimize cognitive load. So that's the take-home message. Well, what does any of that mean? Uh, and they do start with a background. Transfer is hard. It's not just a given. Just because you teach something, uh, we may not see it in practice. And I think we've all had that kind of um, heart sink moment in sim when we hear about something in clinical practice and you think, but we did so much sim on that, but it still didn't go well. Uh, and these uh, authors illustrate to us that theory can help, in this case, instructional theory. And this paper uses a specific model, the four-component instructional design which has two main processes in it. One is variation and the other is repetition. So in this theory, if you have these processes, this is more likely to help people actually be able to transfer to practice. And this is not just in SIM, obviously. So the idea is you have a concrete experience, uh, say seeing a patient with chest pain, you see lots of variations on that. So you see some people of different ages with different symptom complexes and different diagnoses, and you start to abstract from that concrete experience and inductively learn. So you get some cognitive schemas, which is the young person with sudden onset sharp pain is more likely to be either a P or a normal pneumothorax than a older patient with dull, heavy chest pain and ECG changes, which is more likely to be ischemic heart disease. 
So you link that to existing knowledge, elaborate, and then you apply these schemas in novel tasks and situations, which is the sort of transfer. And then through repetition, you get some automation automation of some of these things. So you start to get quite good at your history taking because you've worked out how to do that well. So with those principles in mind, they came up with these recommendations for how we might think about our design choices in simulation. So just to expand a little bit on those things, the whole task practice uh, says, well, it's a bit like um, PBL, in fact, Ben. Uh, you start with, that's just assess a patient with chest pain or shortness of breath or something in the ED. And uh, we know that that is a multi-step process involving multiple tasks, uh, but instead of compartmentalizing them all and then thinking they'll come together, start with the whole task and then zoom in on something that people go, ah, now I know why I need to know that. Uh, the second one is the cognitive task analysis. And again, instead of assuming what we need to know, say with airway management, actually map out what those tasks are for learners. And then that probably might show us some surprising things that we might assume. Just go along with that so-called implicit learning, maybe we could make it a bit more explicit. Uh, thirdly, and I this is probably my favourite, embed this simulation-based education in more comprehensive programs. And I think we're very inclined to think, hey, do some sim stuff and that'll make it better. But this says, look, you have to fit it in around just-in-time procedural information, supporting information on foundational knowledge like pre-reading, repeated practice, and they, they uh, suggest the term simulation-enhanced education rather than simulation-based education, which I thought was quite good. Uh, and then there are other uh, design recommendations. Combine and align different sim activities, and this is nothing new to people, recognizing that some modalities will fit some objectives better, but not just through an effectiveness lens, but also through an efficiency and sort of appeal lens. And finally, uh, optimize cognitive load. So sure, there's an intrinsic difficulty of anything we're trying to learn, but get the balance right so there's less extraneous cognitive load of noise in our design and more germane cognitive load, some so-called desirable difficulties, but not things that distract from that. And then give a little worked example in that of a pediatric respiratory distress, your kind of business, Ben, and uh, a lovely little table that kind of then teases out these principles in that example of learning how to care for a child with respiratory distress. So I think, you know, lovely example of theory informing practice. I think it underlines the rigor that's required for really good educational design. And uh, I, I like the way it's presented. Here's five recommendations and let's work back from there. It's almost like they used their own instructional designs principles, Ben. Yeah, I think for me, uh, it's really cool, fascinating stuff. And you can just kind of feel the passion that the authors have for the concepts within this article. Um, I love their insistence on choosing the right teaching tool for the right skill and the importance of teaching adaptability in the face of complexity through consistent whole task rehearsal and understanding what that looks like and the components of that. I do have to confess, I found this really challenging read. Uh, and I had to go back a number of times to try and get some of the concepts that were being described. And part of me does worry a little bit that there maybe wasn't enough consideration in this article about who the target audience was. Because I think if you're trying to take this established educational theory and translate it to the coal-faced educator, there were just times where it felt quite 
there's a quite a density of language and pedagogical concepts in the text that I found quite tough and, and you know it might be a bit arrogant but for me I feel comfortable using myself as a benchmark for look at I've read a reasonable amount of simulation articles and if I'm having trouble then there's probably going to be other people who are, who are having a bit of trouble getting through this um, so I think some reflection on the approachability of the content here even though I really agree with the message um, would have strengthened it a little bit for the target audience. Yeah, I think that's fair. I didn't find that quite as much, but I guess I came to Sim from a very educational worldview and fortunately have spent a bit of time listening to people at the uh, Monash program about just instructional design things, and I've come across a couple of these models. But uh, I, I think your commentary is fair, and this took me a bit of reading as well, uh, but I found it super interesting and, uh, this, mm, and me too. definitely very rigorous. Yeah, well, absolutely. Ben, we've got big admiration. Yeah, we've got so much advice now about how to evaluate ourselves and others and how to transfer to practice. There's no excuse, really, is there, after these four articles? No, I think everything's fixed. So <laughs> that's good. We can shut down the podcast yep. and uh, all is good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Simulcast listeners, um, of course, we will post the links to the article in our. Uh, episode description accompanying this podcast as well as anything else that I can think of that might be useful. Some lovely opportunities for deeper dives into a few theoretical models here across those articles. Uh, but for the most part, I uh, hope everyone enjoys their April and we'll look forward to catching up with you uh, in a month's time. You too, Ben. Mm, absolutely. Right. See you next month. No worries. This is Ben and Vic signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 